Okay, here we go. Are you ready? Last week we opened up and uh, we didn't really get very far, which doesn't surprise most of you who know me very well. Uh, We do tend to kind of take a leisurely walk through Scripture. And I think there really is a place for that in the church today. So often we take little tidbits and snippets of this, that, and the other and never really consider things in the context they're given in. Uh, Anyway, we're going to be picking up this morning with, uh, with verse 4 and uh, hopefully working down through verse 7 at least. Uh, just remember the things we talked about last week. And, and if you didn't walk away with anything other than this last week, really what I'm hoping more than, than anything else is that you understand something. And that is that God is the author of this book. Not John, not just Jesus and his humanity, but God himself has given us this book. So verse 4, John, to the seven churches that are in, uh, in Asia, grace to you and peace from him who is and who was and who is to come and from the seven spirits uh, who are before his throne. And from Jesus Christ, the faithful witness, the firstborn of the dead, the ruler of the kings of the earth, to him who loves us and released us from our sins by his blood. And he has made us to be a kingdom uh, priest to the God, to his God and Father. To him be the glory and the dominion forever and ever. Uh, Amen. Behold, he is coming with the clouds, and every eye will see him, even those who pierced him, and all the tribes of the earth will mourn over him. Even so, amen. There you see that picture of the second coming of Christ, which we understand is basically almost the crescendo of, uh, of this book. And remember that it's a book uh, about Christ. John introduces himself here, and there is some consideration about the possibility of John's other than the Apostle John. Uh, The consensus, however, is this, is in in early on that this particular book was uh, accepted, acknowledged by the church as John the Apostle whom Jesus loved, the same one who is the author of the gospel according to John, uh, is the author of this book. Uh, we are going to be getting eventually in just a couple of more chapters to seven letters. And those seven letters are letters written to, uh, by Jesus to these particular churches. And uh, if you're much of a geography buff, I actually made a map. I was trying to gonna put on a PowerPoint. I never could get it to go over from the, the uh, program I was using to PowerPoint. It would lose most of the information in the 
the transfer, so we're not able to do that. But if you're familiar with the Middle East and you know Asia, Asia is also called uh, or Turkey, where the country of Turkey is. That these churches were clustered closely to one another within about 100 miles of one another in the western part, the southwestern part of Asia Minor. Uh, and we're going to be getting on to the names of those churches uh, in, in just a little while. And like I said, we will go into more detail when we get to the individual letters. There are seven letters there, each letter written to each one of these churches. We'll be going through those uh, very shortly. Grace to you and peace. Notice that there is a greeting here, and this would be something very similar to what you might find if you're walking down the street in those days. You know, the Jewish people always greet one another with shalom, which simply means peace. Well, you notice here that the, the, the Christian greeting is, includes peace, but it also includes grace. And I think for a lot of reasons, and that is that grace was something that probably eluded most of the Jewish people in the days of Jesus, in the days of the apostles. From him who is and who was and who is to come. Now, now I don't want to go that far just yet. I want to talk about something else first, a couple of things. Uh, First of all, seven is a critical number in the understanding of this book of Revelation. Seven occurs, the number seven occurs 54 times. Because it's not just uh, seven churches, it's seven spirits, and it's seven seals, and it's seven trumpets, and it's seven bowls of wrath. Seven, 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 seven. Now, most of you heard this. That for the Hebrews, for the Jewish people, that the number seven represents fullness or perfection. I think understanding that is a key to our understanding of this book of Revelation. That when we see seven, probably every time we need to be considering the... It applies in literal sense, right? Because there really are seven churches. But we need to understand that these, the, the understanding of these seven churches goes beyond these seven physical churches in southwestern Asia Minor. That what we're talking about here basically is the fullness, the completeness of the church represented in these seven entities. Churches. Ecclesia, you've probably heard that before. It's Greek. It actually literally means just a gathering of people. And for many, many years, that is what it meant in the Greek when people said ecclesia. It just meant that there was a group of people gathered together. But in New Testament Greek, it takes on a new meaning. It goes beyond that. It's not just a gathering of people. It's a gathering of Christians. Together in what we call churches. These seven churches in Asia Minor. Gatherings of Christians. Who come together for fellowship. For study. For worship. 
for witness to the world. Just as we do today. From him who is and who was and who is to come. We live and breathe according to the rule of the infallibility of the interpretation of Scripture. That is that Scripture interprets Scripture. And so when there are places, there are occasions where we see a direct connection between particular passages and our understanding of what the current passage we're studying happens to mean we always have to ask the first question is, what does the rest of the Bible say about this? I mean, what does the rest of the Bible say say about the one who is and the one who was and uh, he who is to come? Not the first time. That this is said. It's also found in the Old Testament. Uh, And we need to understand that. Uh, In the Old Testament, the Old Testament is the the word of God that the apostles had. That's what they took and they went out uh, and they preached. That this is a reference to God to God himself, the only one who was and who is and who will come. And from the seven spirits, Zechariah in his book has a vision that's described in verse or chapter 4, verse 2. It's a vision of seven lamps. Guess what? There are seven lamps in Revelation. And this is what is said in Zechariah. This is the word of the Lord to Zerubbabel. Not by might nor by power, but by my spirit. So what those seven lamps in Zechariah represent are the spirit of God. I know that people come to different conclusions about this. They'll say, well, these are the spirits of the churches. There's a sense in which each church has a spirit, I guess, or... Or, or whatever. But what I'm telling you here is maybe the safest ground for you and I to be on here is this, is let the Bible speak for itself. That this is a reference. These seven spirits before the throne of God are the fullness, the completeness, the perfection of the Holy Spirit. Will we expect him to be there in the throne room? And we're going to see the Father and the Son mentioned No doubt about it. Would we not expect the Holy Spirit to be there in the midst of all of this too? 
and from Jesus Christ. The faithful witness. Now, let me say this. This is a, I've translated this different. Faithful witness is not a bad translation, but I think a better translation is martyr. Martos basically is the Greek word that's being translated here. And when we say martyr, what do you and I think of? We think of those people who have given their life for their faith. So many of them down through the ages. Hebrews eleven thirty seven talks about how some of them were stoned. And we think probably about Stephen, Deacon Stephen, who was stoned to death. Outside of Jerusalem was, is the first martyrdom, you know, in, in, in the Bible recorded after the martyrdom of Jesus. Jesus gave his life for his faith. It mentions there some were sawn in two. We don't have any record specifically of anyone being sawn in two, but we need to understand that we had brothers and sisters who sometime back in history were sawn in half to murder them because of their faith in Jesus Christ. They were tempted. Just like Jesus. Some were put to death with a sword. James, the brother of John, at the hand of Herod. Paul would eventually die by the sword in Rome. There are things we could add to this because we know this from history that some of our brothers and sisters were devoured by beasts in the Colosseum. I don't know about you, but being eaten alive is probably the lowest thing on my list of ways I would prefer to die. I cannot imagine being alive while you're being eaten by something. And we had brothers and sisters that have died in that manner. Those that were burned at the stake by Nero. And you think about John Huss and Polycarp and some of the other church figures from the past. Should we be surprised? Would we be surprised if Christ called us today to be martyred for our faith? I think probably most of us would be absolutely shocked. But you know what? There are people in this room who would die for their faith in Jesus Christ. I have no doubt. And not only that, we need to understand something. That as I'm speaking this morning, there's every chance in the world that we have a brother or sister that's giving their life at this moment for the gospel of Jesus Christ. It may not be our trial or tribulation that we would be crazy to believe that we will not have trial and tribulation in this life if something like this is a possibility. Martyrdom has always been a part. There's a sense in which the blood of the martyrs 
is the seed of the church. So Jesus was the first martyr of a faithful witness. The firstborn of the dead. Now resurrection, the resurrection of Jesus was not the first resurrection that took place in the Bible. If you're familiar with the Bible, then you'll know that there were a number of resurrections that took place in the Old Testament. And uh, and in more recent years, coming up to to John writing this epistle, than the resurrection of Lazarus by Jesus and the uh, and the widow's son in name. And the daughter of the official. But there's a distinct difference between the resurrection of Jesus and these other resurrections. And that is that these people were resurrected from the dead and they lived for a while and then they died again. That their body did eventually die. And they weren't resurrected again. But Jesus' resurrection is eternal. Never to die again. The firstborn of the dead. It is comforting to know that we have brothers and sisters in heaven, such a cloud of witnesses. Because we understand that there is a life that is more important than the life of the body, and that's life of the spirit. Uh, And we also know this, that there is another resurrection to come. When everyone is going to be resurrected, every person that has ever lived is going to be resurrected. Some of those to damnation. The Bible is very clear about that. That's not me talking, so don't get angry with me. It's what God says. It's what he's revealed to us, and it's something that we need to talk about. But at the same time, others resurrected to eternal life in Christ's eternal kingdom which he describes as paradise. I mean, it's not even completely established yet, and he already is describing it as paradise. To him who loves us, do you feel loved by God? Seriously. Let me tell you, if you don't, I don't know how in the world he could possibly demonstrate it to you in any greater way than he already has. He loved you so much that he sent his only begotten son into the world to live and die that you would have life. Can you think of anything that comes close? I mean, it's in a place all by itself. There's nothing like it at all. There's no analogy I can use to describe it. Do you feel released? Released from what? 
Well, we know when the Bible talks about such things very often, just as it says here, he's released us from our sins by his blood. Do you feel released? We read a book, we studied a book a number of years ago that was written by Steve Brown. And I, can re- I don't remember a whole lot of things about the book, but the, one of the things was this, is, is that, that Steve Brown in that book identifies many Christians as, as, as being in prison and the cell door is now open for them to walk out freely. But they just sit in the jail. They're bound. They continue to be bound as if they're imprisoned, as if they're in jail. Even though Jesus has set them free for them to walk out and get on with life to his glory. Where are you? Seriously. Are you one of those people still sitting in the prison cell? Do you know that your shackles are removed? That sin no longer has the hold on you that it once had? And he's made us to be a kingdom of priests to his God and Father. To him be the glory and the dominion forever and ever. Amen. Now, one of the interesting things about it is this, is once you get beyond the Jewish idea of the priesthood in the Gospels, and you see a little bit of in the epistles and places, the title of priest is never applied to one single individual but Jesus. If you haven't studied the book of Hebrews, Jesus is the perfect priest. He's our priest. We don't need any other priest. There's no person on earth that we should ever call a priest. Unless we apply it to every Christian. Because this is not the only place that it says this. That he will make us a kingdom of priests. Now, you may not feel like a priest. You may not even understand what your function as a priest might be. But one of the things that we know was primary for the priests in the Old Testament was intercession. In other words, they stood between God and people. And they stood on behalf of the person. This is why Jesus is the great high priest is because he stood on our behalf interceding between us and he continues to do that between us and God. Probably the best example that I can give you of how it is that Christians serve as priests is through intercessory prayer. I hope that you are praying for the salvation of people you know who are unbelievers. I hope you're praying for the salvation of people you don't know.
Understand, he's given us stuff to do, and this is one of the primary things he's given us to do, and that is to be intercessors on behalf of those who are yet unbelieving. Now, one of the primary vehicles for that is through prayer. What is our motivation? Because we want people to like us a lot. So we can tell people, I prayed for you, for your salvation this morning. Make us feel good about ourselves because we've done something like that. No. Let me tell you something. The only real, true, and right motivation for a Christian to do anything is for the glory of God. For God's glory. That should be the utmost reason for absolutely everything that we do. That God would be glorified and honored in all of it. As we serve as husbands and wives, as we serve as parents, as grandparents, as friends, as neighbors, as aunts and uncles. Paul says to do everything. To the glory of God. That should be our motivation for all things. Dominion forever and ever. You know, it's so easy to get trapped where we're at in time. We're stuck in time in a sense. It's unfolding, yes, but it's not going by all that fast. Think back, I know some of us are getting up in years, but think back when you were little. Look back at all the stuff that's taken place since you were five years old, and you'd say there's a heap of stuff that's taken place. Time has gone by. As we said last week, and we've said a number of times, that God's timetable is not the same, is not the historical timetable that you and I are kind of locked in. His timetable is eternity. That scale has no beginning and it has no end to it. Can you, can you wrap your head around eternity? Can you wrap your hand, head around God to a significant degree at all? When I was in eighth grade, I had one of the reasons I, I love science like I do was I had two really great science teachers when I was in school. One of them was Mrs. Moss in seventh grade. And she made us memorize every one of those symbols for the elements, every blasted one of them. She looked just like the Wicked Witch of the West. And she behaved like her, too, to some degree. She, she walked around with her meter stick, not her yardstick, her meter stick, because she was a scientist. Uh, but I, she's really the one that stir, began to stir my interest in science when I was in school. Then Mr. George, she was not quite as good as she was, but he really had a way of making you think. And one day we were talking about the universe. And he he asked us this question. This is a bunch of eighth graders. He said, well, how big do you think the universe is? So we're sitting there going, well, you know, no one can really say much of anything and, and all that. He said, well, answer this question. 
If there's an end to it, what's on the other side of it? That's eternity, guys. We can't even understand it. Because we're used to everything being in these fixed physical states. Eternity is beyond our comprehension. The only thing we know is it'll just go on and on. What's on the other side of eternity? Ask, answer that. Eternity. <laughs> it just goes on and on and on. There's no end to it. Can you imagine? It just blows your mind. Behold, he is coming with the clouds. And every eye will see him, even those who pierced him, and all the tribes of the earth will mourn over him. Should be reminiscent of the Olivet Discourse. Jesus says basically the same thing. Uh, that he's coming with the clouds of glory. Not only that, you see it also alluded to in, in Daniel, uh, chapter 6 or 7. I don't remember which chapter that vision is of the a son of man coming on the clouds of glory. It's just a biblical thing. This is not something new that Jesus has just come, or John has come up with here. Coming on the clouds of glory. And what Jesus says in the Olivet Discourse is that's going to be the sign that he's coming. It's when you see him on the clouds of glory. And every eye will see him. Every eye, not some eyes, not most eyes, every single human eye there ever has been. We'll see him. It's funny, Paul had to deal with this in uh, Thessalonica, and that is that people had the idea that Jesus had already come. <laughs> Let me tell you, no one would be mistaken. When Jesus really comes, Jesus will come. And there will not be a single person living on the whole globe who will have any doubt for one second that, that anyone less than God himself has descended upon this place. Every eye will see, every tongue will confess, and every knee will bow. Some of those in penance a repentance. Some of them not. Some will bow because they're forced to bow. Not because they have a repentant heart. Some will confess, not because they want to confess, but because they have no choice. In the matter. One of the things I want to bring to your attention is we go through this book and we see places where judgment comes. It talks about people trying to hide from God, to crawl under rocks and under mountains and such and such and such and such. These will be those who deny his kingship. And the sad thing about it is this, is even when they are confronted face-to-face with God himself, they still don't repent. 
In other words, there's a sense in which the appearance of God just makes their hard heart harder. Now, I'd say this is probably one of the characteristics of hell. We know it's going to be a place of torment. And you're thinking the hardest person eventually would have enough of it and give up the ghost. But that's not what happens. Their heart becomes harder and harder and harder toward God. Even those who pierced him, well, we know that Jesus was pierced by a sword. We know that his, his hands and his feet were pierced with nails. All kinds of sharp instruments that we can use to pierce ourselves or pierce other people with. In all the tribes of the earth will mourn over him. I would imagine one of the things that's happened in the past that more closely resembles what we're talking about than many other things would be the Passover in Egypt. Remember when the firstborn of all of the Egyptians died. And what, how the Bible describes it is there was a great mourning that went out in all of the land. A great cry of grief. It'll be the first time a lot of people understand something, and that is there really is a God. There really is a God. I hate to use this example, but it just it's, it's, it's one that, that I heard years ago and in seminary, and it just shook me to the core because I'm thinking, gosh, that just it sounds terrible, it sounds awful and, and all of that, but it really does describe the difference between where we are and where we will be in our desire and passion for God to be glorified in everything. Dr. Gerstner one time. I had a class in seminary with John Gerstner. He was uh, R.C. Sproul's mentor, and Bruce and Peggy know, knew both of them. Uh, but he scared the bejeebies out of us. He said a lot of things, and one of the things he said one day that just, just really got the best of us was, and what he was doing, he was trying to demonstrate to us the difference from our perspective of what it is now and what it will be when we are truly, fully, completely glorified. That we truly, really will want nothing more than God to be glorified in all things, everything. 
And what he said that day was this. He said that when you are in that place, you will rejoice to see your unbelieving mother cast into hell for all of eternity. Sounds kind of severe, doesn't it? But it does get your attention. And he liked to get your attention. And he did that kind of stuff over and over again. But the truth is this, guys. This is reality. And that is, as much as our heart is for God now, it is not fully and completely and wholly for God. I don't know about you, but as it's, 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 I look at myself, I see myself still as being the center of all things for me. But the point he was trying to make is this, is that we will finally enter into a state when that will no longer be true and our great passion, the consuming passion for all of us, for all of eternity, will be for God to be glorified. Because that is what he's worthy of. And that's what he deserves. So why do you do what you do? For the glory of God? Or for your own glory? Really? Seriously? Think about it. We will move on next week.